Thank you, Travis, for uh, the introduction, and thank you so much for the invitation to be here. Um, really quite an honor. Um, so today we're going to talk about genetic skin disorders, and I think when you hear the term genetic skin disorders, it gives a lot of us anxiety. Um, and I think part of that is because we tend to think about it in a very scientific manner in terms of how a disorder is inherited and that sort of thing. And so I'm going to try to um, uh, give us kind of a more of a clinical approach today, and we'll go over some of the more common genetic skin disorders as well. So, um, so our objectives for today are uh, to review a clinical approach to uh, uh, common genetic skin diseases to review those more common genetic skin disorders, uh, to talk about treatment options um, and some practical knowledge uh, when treating patients, and then to identify some resources that you can talk about with patients. Um, so this is kind of a, a very um, basic schematic. There are so many categories of genetic skin disorders, so I wanted to break it down a little bit um, in just a few main categories. So. Um, abnormal pigmentation, which we won't talk too much about, uh, those with photosensitivity, which we also won't talk too much about, and then the last two are the ones we'll focus on a little bit more today, so uh, those with scaling and then uh, those with blisters. So um, abnormal pigmentation, um, so this is kind of, I think can be kind of difficult, you know, you have a, a patient that comes in and you see some things that just don't seem quite right in terms of pigmentation, but then where to go from there can be a little bit challenging. Um, so just a more simple way to think about it, I think, uh, this is how I kind of like to approach it, um, is to um, see which parts of the body, which parts of the cutaneous system and other parts might be have, have some abnormal pigmentation. And so if you're thinking about skin and eyes, that might point you towards oculocutaneous albinism. If it's skin and hair, then you know one of these three, skin, hair, and eyes, then you might kind of fall into this category there. And then uh, those that have multiple lentigenes um, might fall more into carnine complex or leopard or neurofibromatosis. Photosensitivity. Um, you know, there's a, there's a few of them. There's not a lot of them, uh, but there's a few of them. They all have very distinct uh, 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 qualities, and so it might be, you know, a little bit easier to try to narrow those down. And then the scaly baby, so we'll focus on this for, for about half of our talk today. Um, that can really be broken down um, into sort of whether or not they're syndromic. So, you know, are there a lot of other abnormalities that maybe might be more important than the skin or more um, prominent than the skin? Um, or is the skin the, the primary site of involvement? And then based on the features, so, you know, is it mild or is there a lot of scale? Is it more severe? We might be able to break it down even further from purely a clinical basis. And then uh, the blistering baby can also be another really tough one. Um, and so if we think about it, whether or not it's, you know, diffuse or whether or not it's localized and then kind of the areas of involvement that might be more prominent, we might be able to kind of break it down into more of these categories. And so we'll go all over all of those as well a little bit more. So that brings us to the first scenario. Um, so this parent brings their child in. They say, that, you know, that this kid has always had scaly skin. No matter how much moisturizer I put on it, her skin is always scaly. And really, you know, they're not too symptomatic, but I don't really like the look of it, and I wonder what's going on. So this is really a hallmark of the ichthyoses. Um, the ichthyoses are disorders of cornification, so they're marked by hyperkeratosis and scaling. Um, and it comes from ichthys, which is the Greek root for fish, so in terms of fish scale. 
Um, there, are, there are mutations most commonly in lipid metabolism, and these can be spontaneous, inherited, or uh, mosaic mutations. But what, it, what happens is that it leads to skin barrier dysfunction, and then eventually it leads to increased transepidermal water loss. And the non-syndromic forms of ichthyosis, which is what we'll really focus on more today, are the most common rather than the syndromic forms. So here's a photograph um, of a common patient with ichthyosis. So you can see there's a moderate amount of scale um, on the shoulder here, uh, on the pretibial areas, uh, not particularly dark, um, but definitely noticeable. And this is ichthyosis vulgaris. So if we kind of use our, our little diagram again, so it's scaly person with primarily skin involvement, but it's pretty mild. Uh, so that'll bring us to ichthyosis vulgaris. It's the most common uh, form, genetic form of ichthyosis. Anywhere from four to 12 in every thousand people have ichthyosis vulgaris. Usually the features aren't terribly present at birth, um, but it does fortunately usually improve with age. And if you are able to live in a warm, moist environment, um, it'll get better as well. A lot of my patient population asks for a prescription to move to Florida. So kind of like we saw in the picture, the clinical features, um, you see that kind of larger plate-like scale, um, usually in the pretibial and lower leg area, it tends to be fairly prominent. The darker your skin type, the more prominent it looks. Um, you can have a fair amount of scaling on the forehead and the cheeks. And then a hallmark of ichthyosis vulgaris is hyperlinearity of the palms and the soles. So a lot of times um, I'll look at the, um, the palms of a child and I might even look at the parent because it is uh, um, usually autosomally dominantly inherited. Um, and then characteristically it tends to spare the flexural areas. Um, a lot of these patients will have an atopic background, um, really have, uh, commonly have atopic dermatitis and very commonly have keratosis pilaris. So in the general population, you know, keratosis pilaris is present in about 30 to 40% of people, but in people that have ichthyosis vulgaris, up to 100% of patients with ichthyosis vulgaris will have keratosis pilaris. So it's um, what's called autosomal semi-dominant, so that if you inherit one gene, you'll have the disease, but if you inherit two genes, you're more likely to have uh, more severe disease. And the mutation for ichthyosis vulgaris is in filaggrin, um, and that's been implicated in atopic dermatitis as well recently. Uh, filaggrin is really vital to normal skin barrier function and the uh, function of the stratum corneum. And when you uh, have mutations in filaggrin, your transepidermal water loss increases. So it also allows for foreign substances to enter into the skin a bit easier as well. All right, so this is the next form of ichthyosis. You can see compared to our first picture, this is uh, you know, quite a bit more significant scale. It's darker, it's thicker, it's more diffuse. Um, there's that neck involvement right there. So this is, it's usually in males, and then that brown scale. So this is X-linked ichthyosis. And that's caused by a defect in the ARSC1 um, gene, and that leads to decreased steroid sulfatase, which also causes an insufficient epidermal barrier. Um, it really can range, so anywhere from one in 2,000 to one in 10,000 males um, can be born with X-linked ichthyosis, depending on you know, you know, the population. It seems to be most common in the Danish population. Um, there can be female carriers who can have less severe manifestations of the ichthyosis. And usually, um, it's not present at birth, although one in six can have some amount of scale at birth, but usually it is apparent within the first few months of life. And that's 
you know, opposed to ichthyosis vulgaris. Sometimes the two can be a little bit hard to distinguish from clinical, uh, from a clinical basis, but you know, if a baby is you know, three months or younger and is showing a fair amount of scale, you really have to think hard about X-length ichthyosis. Uh, they can be born with a collodion membrane, and I'll talk about that um, a little bit more. It can involve the entire body, so really dark um, scale. You know, a really common thing will be um, that a parent comes in and says, well, I just thought the back of his neck was dirty, but really it's thick brown scale from ichthyosis vulgaris. Uh, they can periodically shed this uh, scale, uh, and it can be more prominent, again, on the back of the neck, the abdomen, and the back. Um, and, for, and this one also tends to um, spare the flexural areas and spare the face, palms, and soles. Many of these patients can have hypogonadism or cryptorchidism, so it's really important to um, do it or have them have a good testicular exam. Um, and then there can be corneal opacities on split lamp examination, but it doesn't affect their vision. Sometimes the genes around the um, steroid sulfatase genes can be mutated as well, so then you can have a contiguous gene deletion. So in addition to the features of the X-linked ichthyosis, um, you can have ichthyosis with Kalman syndrome, which will also give you mental retardation and anosmia or an inability to smell. Um, and then you can also have X-linked recessive chondrodysplasia punctata, which will give you some bony dysplasia along with the ichthyosis. And you can um, diagnose, diagnose these prenatally because the steroid sulfatase deficiency will lead to a decreased um, estriol level in the mom. Um, and then uh, also many of the moms of these patients relate a history of failure to progress in labor and often need either you know, a, a forceps or vacuum assisted delivery or even a C-section. So this is a photograph of a collodion baby. So you can see that there's this really thin sort of parchment-like covering um, through the entire uh, skin. You can see that it, it kind of restricts, um, it can restrict movement of the baby. Um, it everts the lips a little bit, everts the eyelids a little bit. Um, so these babies um, are, may be premature. Uh, the collodion membrane is kind of a phenotype at birth, and it can progress into a variety of things. So most of them, so two-thirds of these babies, are going to go on to have an autosomal recessive congenital ichthyosis, and we'll talk about these a little bit more. Um, but they also could be self-healing, so about 10%. Uh, they might just shed their membrane and then never have any skin problems again. Uh, and then others could have X-linked recessive ichthyosis, like we talked about, trichothiodystrophy, and then uh, Sjogren-Larsen syndrome. Um, at birth, they can have respiratory difficulty just because of the, um, a little bit of restriction from that membrane. Uh, they might not be able to suck well. They could have a lot of uh, transepidermal water loss and other insensible losses. Uh, they could then get hypernatremic dehydration, uh, temperature instability, and so for the, these reasons, it's really important to uh, initiate some supportive care really early on, and we'll talk a bit more about that later. So that brings us to the autosomal recessive congenital ichthyoses. These are, this is a group of uh, three uh, different diagnoses, and really you can probably think of them on a spectrum. Um, so the harlequin ichthyosis is by far the most severe, and then the non-bullous congenital ichthyosiform erythroderma, or non-bullous CIE, is the least severe, and lamellar is probably somewhere in the middle. There's a wide range of phenotypes, and pretty rare, um, but you know, one of the more common ichthyoses, uh, so one in 100,000 to one in 300,000 live births. And usually these patients do have some, have lifelong symptoms. Um, so this next photograph is difficult. I have a few kind of uh, more difficult photographs, uh, just to warn you, there's three or four of them. Um, 
But this is harlequin ichthyosis, so the most severe of these um, autosomal recessive congenital ichthyoses. So you can see that um, there's kind of like an armor-like covering uh, to the skin. There's fissuring in that, um, really pretty severe um, eclabium, so eversion of the lip, and ectropion, so eversion of the eyelid. Um, the digits are restricted as well. So, you know, again, really quite severe. So these are the, the three autosomal recessive congenital ichthyoses. So arlequin ichthyosis is caused by a deficiency in ABCA12, which is really important, again, for lipids in the stratum corneum uh, and for protease function. Um, and like we saw, you know, that armor-like uh, plating, basically, to the skin is present with some marked facial dis uh, distortion and ectropion. Uh, these babies often have a lot of respiratory uh, restriction right at birth, uh, really poorly developed uh, digits with some flexion deformity. Um, most don't end up surviving the neonatal period, and it can be for a variety of reasons, but most commonly respiratory difficulty and aspiration, um, sepsis, dehydration, and hypothermia. This is the next autosomal recessive congenital ichthyosis. So you can see quite a bit of thick scale um, uh, marked, pretty marked ectropion there as well, and kind of diffuse scaling kind of all over the skin. And this is lamellar ichthyosis, so thick brown scale and ectropion. Um, most of lamellar ichthyosis is caused by a mutation in transglutaminase 1, and this is another important uh, gene in the uh, formation of the stratum corneum. Um, most of the babies will have a collodion membrane at birth, and the severity of um, how affected a patient is can really vary, but by and large, most of them tend to be fairly severely affected. So again, really large plate-like scale, um, face, trunk, and extremities uh, can be affected. And like the other ichthyoses we talked about, this one actually really likes to involve the flexural area, so that can be a st distinguishing feature. Uh, the palms and soles are almost always affected. You can have some partial hair loss. And then just because of the amount of skin involvement, you can have uh, some pretty significant heat intolerance. So a lot of times, you'll have to um, actively cool um, these patients, especially when they're kids and they're trying to run outside to play and that kind of thing. So you can have um, ectropion and ecolabium. And then there's an interesting variant, um, which is called bathing suit ichthyosis. So in some people, that uh, transglutaminase 1 is temperature sensitive. And so they tend to be only affected in the warmer areas of the body, so where the, uh, where the bathing suit might be. And then this is the last of the um, autosomal recessive congenital ichthyosis. So you can see this is a bit milder, but quite a bit of erythema, um, erythroderma, basically. And then this really kind of fine, uh, bran-like, brawny scale. And that's characteristic of the uh, non-bullous congenital ichthyosis from erythroderma, or non-bullous CIE. And those are caused by mutations in ALOX, which is another really important stratum corneum gene. Um, so really that fine white scale. They could have some other abnormalities, although they tend to be a little bit more rare. So um, they could have alopecia, they could have some neurologic problems, um, they could have some nail involvement. Um, so then um, this is the last uh, disorder that we'll talk about in, in scaly people. Um, what, what's noticeable, notable about this one is that there's a lot of kind of brown, almost dirty brown looking uh, corrugated scale. Um, you can see right there. 
and that is um, epidermolytic ichthyosis. So this usually presents with blisters at birth, which is why we kind of put it in that, in that blistering uh, side. So epidermolytic ichthyosis, um, all of these ichthyoses recently went through kind of an overhaul of the naming, and I think it's probably for the better. Um, but it used to be called epidermolytic hyperkeratosis, or EHK, and that really signifies the histologic change you see um, in the disorder. And it had a number of other names as well. Um, it's caused by mutations in keratin 1 or 10, affects in about 1 in about 300,000 people. Um, but while it's autosomal dominant, about half of people have new mutations, so they may not have any family history of it at all. Um, but one interesting variant is that um, people that have epidermal nevi, so this is a you know, pretty typical epidermal nevus, if they have this EHK change in their epidermal nevus, then they're at risk of passing on actually full-blown epidermolytic ichthyosis to their offspring. And it's hard to quantify what that risk is, but it's probably a higher risk the more involvement you have with the epidermal nevus. So in epidermal ichthyosis, epidermolytic ichthyosis, um, there's usually red tender skin at birth. Um, it usually blisters. Um, that's how the, uh, the presentation is at birth or in the early neonatal period. It can be really difficult to distinguish from other blistering disorders at birth, like epidermolysis bullosa or Staph's scalded skin syndrome. Um, and then after the first few months, it transitions to that photograph that we saw, so a little bit more of that thick sort of corrugated cardboard-like scale that really likes flexural areas. Um, it really likes joints as well, and that can cause problems with uh, mobility and gait. Um, palms and soles are really commonly involved. And then for whatever reason, these patients unfortunately tend to suffer from a lot of body odor. Um, and then they really outgrow the blistering by the time of adulthood. They're very susceptible to secondary infections as well, so very important to monitor them for that. <clears throat> And then the last category is the syndromic ones, and these are just a few of the syndromic ichthyoses, and usually um, in these disorders, the skin tends to be mi minor um, compared to everything else that's going on, um, and we really won't talk about those today. It could be a whole other talk in and of itself. And then as far as treatment goes, um, depending on each disorder, uh, the treatment is a little bit different, um, so we'll kind of talk a little bit about each one. Uh, and how to approach the treatment. So ichthyosis vulgaris, the most common one, um, really just good sensitive skin care. So really kind of short, lukewarm beds, um, moisturizer is important. Uh, moisturizers containing lactic acid and urea can be really helpful. Uh, but you want to be careful to not recommend this really early on in life. Um, so kids with a lot of body surface area involvement are at risk for systemic absorption with the um, salicylic uh, acid containing medications or lactic acid containing medications. <clears throat> and then the collodion uh, membrane baby, usually just spontaneous breathing will lead to spontaneous tears in the membrane and then overall shedding within uh, three to four weeks. You really don't want to help this along by manual debridement because it will increase their risk of infection. So again, 10% of them will be self-healing. They'll never have another problem again. Um, but in general, all babies born with collodion membrane, because they have so much insensible loss, they'll need to go to the neonatal intensive care unit, be in a high humidity incubator, um, really monitor their weight and their electrolyte balance. Um, you want to consider caloric supplementation because they can actually lead up, uh, lose up to 1,000 calories a day. And you can imagine for a little baby like that, that's a lot. Um, they're at higher risk for infection, so they should be monitored for that. 
And then from a skin perspective, um, really just good emollients with something that's petrolatum based um, is the best kind of moisturizer. And then we do want to avoid medicated creams just because of that um, increased risk of uh, systemic absorption. If they do have eptropion, then usually involve ophthalmology early on. And then um, usually an oral retinoid is not needed because of the spontaneous shedding over three to four weeks. And then treat any underlying disease. For excellent ichthyosis, you can approach milder cases, much like you approach ichthyosis vulgaris, so you know, moisturizing, topical keratolytics. But when you get to the more severe ones, um, they might need low-dose oral retinoids uh, to help them shed their scale. Um, and then again, you know, testicular exam is important. Um, lamellar ichthyosis um, can often be approached quite like really severe excellent ichthyosis. So, you know, moisturizers and keratolytics. Um, a lot of these patients will need oral retinoids, though. Um, usually, low dose uh, at anywhere from you know a quarter to a half a milligram per kilogram per day of isotretinoin or the equivalent. They'll often need increased calories and fluids. And then the eptropion can be really a big part of it. It can really dry the eye out and lead to keratitis and eye complications. So moisturizing eye drops are really important for them. Uh, there have been a few reports of using tazeratine or Tazerac to um, decrease the amount of eptropion. And then surgery is really kind of a last resort because it does tend to recur. And then uh, congenital ichthyosis from erythroderma, so the kind of the milder form, um, usually just moisturizing and paying attention to calories. And a lot of these uh, kids and, and patients will end up having atopic dermatitis, so treating the atopic dermatitis appropriately is an important part of their treatment. Um, the harlequin ichthyosis, uh, that has a really high rate of mortality, and even in those that survive a fair a number or survive for a period of time, a fair number of them have uh, a significant amount of developmental delay. Um, you can help, you know, they can be in quite a bit of pain, so that's important to pay attention to. Uh, moisturization can help that. Um, oral retinoids can uh, prolong their life, but I think, you know, it's always hard and important uh, to think about what the long-term outcome uh, will be and what the goals are. So, it, you know, every case is really um, different, so it just really depends on the parents and their wishes. Um, but supportive care is still really important in terms of maintaining their, you know, fluid and electrolyte balance and treating any uh, respiratory problems that might be present, and then uh, eye lubrication again. And then epidermolytic ichthyosis, uh, the care really varies um, between the neonatal period and the early infancy period when they're blistering and then those that are adults. And so initially on, you know, you'll have to do a skin biopsy to kind of distinguish between the other um, forms of blistering skin disease. Um, you want to minimize skin trauma and then lance any large blisters, especially when, um, when they're particularly large, uh, uh, to decrease their risk of infection. And then wound care is really important. And again, um, you know, kind of a recurring theme, infection and, electro and electrolytes are important to monitor for. And then later on, um, that scale really builds up from um, friction, and so decreasing friction uh, is an important component of treatment. So moisturizing will help with that, um, preventing infection, using long soaking pads and using bleach pads can be important. Um, and then keratolytics and often oral retinoids are really helpful for them as well. And then this is a really good organization. This is FIRST, um, which is the Foundation for Ichthyosis and Related Skin Types. This is a, it's a uh, support group, but I think it's, a, it's really good for patients and providers alike. 
um, firstskincomefoundation.org. So if you look, this is just a, a snapshot of their website. So you know they, they talk about ichthyosis, they talk about their organization, um, different events that they have. Um, parents and families can connect with each other. Um, there's also a really nice uh, section of it directed at healthcare professionals. So there's some videos talking about ichthyosis and management. Um, and then they have some informational pages as well. It's a really, really good organization. All right, so now that brings us to the next category we'll talk about. Um, so this is a baby, term newborn male, um, noted to have diffuse blisters at birth and really fragile skills, um, skin, even with just minor regular handling. So this um, is a very characteristic of epidermolysis bullosa, or EB. This is a group of inherited skin disorders that's really characterized by um, blister formation in relation to any amount of, uh, or varying amounts of friction or trauma, depending on the type. Um, the severity of it really depends on the level of the skin and where the defect occurs. And then uh, in terms of uh, narrowing down what type it is, um, that can be done by uh, special biopsy. So it's not just routine H&E, actually. Routine histology doesn't really offer much most of the time, but um, it usually takes like special aminofluorescence or, um, and or electron microscopy. And now there are a fair number of gene tests to be able to specifically narrow it down um, as well, but you know, that, that's not always a possibility since they're expensive. Um, but one in 50,000 uh, people will have a form of epidermolysis bullosa. So um, EB can be thought about in different ways. So you can think about it in the way it's inherited. You can think about it in where the mutation is in the level of skin. Uh, you can also think about it from more of a clinical perspective. And I think you know, early on, uh, the clinical perspective might be the only thing that you have um, because you don't have your test back or anything like that. So um, I like to break it down into whether or not it's diffuse or localized involvement. And then depending on specific features, you might be able to get a bit more of an idea. But oftentimes, before you have all your tests back, you're thinking of a couple of different types, usually. So there are three main groups, and again, they reclassified these, which I think they made it a little bit more simple, too, because they can be really confusing, but um, EB simplex, uh, junctional EB, and dystrophic EB. And these uh, really refer to where in uh, the level of skin the defect is. So EB simplex um, happens in that, in that superficial layer of skin. Junctional EB is mutations in the uh, dermoepidermal junction, and then dystrophic is down in the superficial dermis. So simplex, again, is intraepidermal cleavage, so it's caused by mutations in keratins 5 and 14. And most of these are autosomal dominantly inherited. And there's a few major types, so localized, which used to be called Weber cocaine, generalized, which used to be called Kebner, and then dowling mira which used to be well, which is also called EB herpetiformis. So, so in this picture, this person um, you know, just has a couple of blisters on their feet. Um, their you know, toenails really aren't changed at all. You don't see a whole lot of involvement. Um, and this is really typical. So this is localized and mostly hands and feet. So that's really typical of the localized form of EB simplex. Um, this is uh, the most common type of epidermolysis bullosa, and it really requires a fair amount of uh, friction or trauma to induce these blisters. Um, in fact, some people, many people probably go through life having it, but not really knowing it. 
Um, usually the hands and the feet tend to be the most commonly uh, involved. And it, may, it can present in infancy, but also may present in adulthood or it may not present at all. Um, a lot of these patients can have hyperhidrosis, so using aluminum chloride can help. And then um, hyperkeratosis of the palms and soles can be characteristic. This one, as you can see, has a bit more extensive blistering, um, more severe on the bottom of the feet. If you look up here, there's some involvement on the knee. There's some involvement on the upper thigh up there as well. So that is more diffuse and, you know, uh, worse at this more friction-inducing area. So that's uh, the generalized uh, type of EB simplex. So again, worse the areas of friction. Fortunately, it tends to improve with age, um, but then hyperhidrosis and palmoplantar plantar hyperkeratosis can be characteristic features. Um, you can have some mouth and nail involvement. So, you know, early on, you might not be sure that this is what you're dealing with. Maybe you're dealing with a different type. Um, can be hard to say. And in this one, you can see the blisters are a little bit more grouped. Um, and this is typical of the uh, Dowling Mira or the EB herpetiformis. This is the most severe type of the epidermal lysis bullosa simplex. Um, and you can even have widespread blistering at birth. Uh, it can be dis difficult to distinguish from the more severe forms of EB. You could have a, a hoarse cry. And then as you get older, you transition from widespread blistering to more of that characteristic grouped blistering. And thankfully, that also improves with age. The second type, uh, second group of EBs are the junctional type. So that's in, in you know, if you remember that picture in the uh, dermo-epidermal junction is where the mutations are. Uh, the mutations can be in one of several different structures, and these tend to be more autosomal recessive. And the spectrum can really range in how much involvement there is. It can be mild, it can be really severe and, and lethal even. Um, you do have generalized blistering at birth in most of these, uh, and characteristically, it tends to involve the buttocks and the pinna uh, more frequently than other types. Uh, you can have a lot of nail involvement and a lot of involvement around the mouth. The main types are herlets, which is the lethal, very severe one, uh, non-herlets, which can be either localized or generalized, and then um, with pyloric atresia, which also tends to be very severe and, and unfortunately lethal. So this is another um, uh, picture that's not, not terribly fun to look at, but this baby you can see has widespread blistering, a lot of involvement around the mouth. You can see some limb defects as well, uh, pretty sparse hair. Um, and this is junctional EB, and this one is actually the Hurlitz type, which is the more severe kind. So unfortunately, um, half of kids don't make it past the age of two as of now. Um, when they do have these blisters, they heal with a lot of scar. And then uh, one characteristic feature is that they got a lot of oral um, and esophageal involvement. So you get this really uh, intense uh, granulation tissue around the mouth, which can be uh, very friable. You can have laryngeal and uh, airway involvement. You can have loss of fingernails. Uh, you can have uh, dental enamel hypoplasia. That's actually a, a characteristic distinguishing feature of all the types of junctional EB. And then uh, you can have uh, decreased growth and anemia. There's also a generalized form that's not as lethal as the Hurlitz. Um, it used to be called generalized atrophic benign EB or GABEB. Um, and you can also have some systemic involvement with this, but you can see in this photograph, this baby has that type, 
um, overall seems a bit healthier than the other child, you know, a little bit more full in the face and that kind of thing, but quite a bit of blistering still. And then this one, uh, you can see is very prominent um, granulation tissue, but this is more localized on the scalp. So this is the localized form of junctional ED. Um, so those usually have very just, you know, localized areas. Scalp can be a really um, prominent area of involvement. Really not a lot of scarring and not a lot of mucous membrane involvement, fortunately. <clears throat> so this is the last type of junctional EB, and this is pretty characteristic. Um, this is really early on in life, and you can see a lot of inflammation around the nails, so a lot of perinicchia, and really no fingernails that are present. Um, and this is typical of junctional EB with pyloric atresia. So this unfortunately is usually lethal in the neonatal period. Um, a lot of times these kids don't make it out of the hospital. Um, severe blisters, you know, no fingernails. They have uh, pyloric atresia. Even when the pyloric atresia is corrected, still the, um, you know, the prognosis is not very good. Um, and then you can see, you know, malformed ears and then that dental enamel hypoplasia if they do happen to survive. All right, so the last type of EB is the dystrophic type. Um, dystrophic uh, refers to scarring, and then that is the lowest area of cleavage, so on, um, below the basement membrane. And the dominant form is less severe, but the recessive form is more severe, and, and this is the one I think we, we think about a lot, and we see a lot of pictures of the recessive dystrophic kind of EB. So this person you can see has some blustering on the knees. Um, if you see this area right here, that area has healed on that upper right knee. Um, if you look, you know, it's hard to see from that picture, but within that are milia. Um, so this is more diffuse EB with some atrophic scars. And so that kind of puts you down into that dystrophic category. Um, and that patient had the dominant subtype, so less severe than the recessive. So usually present at birth too. What's characteristic about the dystrophic forms as opposed to the other forms is that they do tend to heal with atrophic scar, but also that atrophic scar has, usually has milia within it. Um, the extensor extremities and dorsal hands are the worst areas of involvement. You can have a lot of nail involvement. You can have a lot of GI involvement. Um, even in the dominant dystrophic form, you can have an increased risk of squamous cell carcinoma. Um, and then there's another subtype of this, which is called EB periginosa, which can be really severe and itchy. So um, this is a picture of that. Um, so most commonly involves that shin area, and you can see a lot of involvement there. A lot of these patients go through life, um, you know, having pruraigo basically because the blisters might not be very apparent, and even doing a routine H&E might not, well, probably won't tell you that this person actually has a form of epidermal lysis bullosa. Um, so just, an, just something to keep in the differential of, of uh, someone that has a lot of pruraigo on their lower legs. This is a really hard form to treat because that itching can really be intractable. All right, so this is the last type of EB, which is the recessive dystrophic. This is the one that's been a little bit more in the news you might have heard of um, um, and just, you know, in the literature as well. Um, so you can see this really extensive, severe blistering, um, lots of atrophic scar on that foot. You can see the digits are sort of fused together, um, which is the mitten deformity. This is a really severe, um, very life-altering disease. Um, you know, a lot of these 
a lot of these patients will live many years, um, but they will live with this, um, and it really doesn't improve as they get older. Um, but a lot of dystrophic scarring, a lot of mucous membrane involvement, you can have any part of the skin involved. Uh, you can have alopecia, and then uh, very characteristic, one hallmark is the pseudosyndactyly or the mitten deformity, and then also some flexion contractures. So this is a uh, really significant mitten deformity. So you can see that there's pretty much no separation of any of the digits on the hands, and it'd be pretty hard to go through life not, being ha not having any individual digits. You can have a lot of systemic complications with this form as well. You can have a lot of um, GI involvement, upper GI involvement especially, so uh, problems with swallowing, um, small mouth opening, um, esophageal stenosis, you can have scarring of the cornea, involvement of the larynx. Um, it's just recently been found that uh, these patients are at risk for low bone density and osteoporosis. Uh, they can have a lot of dental cavities, um, failure to thrive, and anemia. And then squamous cell carcinoma, that's a really important, serious potential complication. 90% will have a squamous cell carcinoma by the age of 55. And the squamous cell carcinoma um, is really uh, more likely to metastasize than in other people, so that's, that can be a big uh, cause of mortality. Um, and then uh, they do usually have a shortened lifespan, so either from the squamous cell carcinoma or from infection and sepsis, most commonly. This is a picture of kind of the, the mouth involvement on that tongue, and you can see that the mouth narrowing itself is uh, smaller, um, so microstomia. And then in terms of treatment, we really don't have a cure for any of the types of epidermal bullosa, so it really focuses on supportive care. Um, and uh, a lot of these families get very good at taking care of skin and tend to have a decent quality of life. Um, but the principles are mainly to minimize trauma and friction, to prevent infection, uh, to support patients and their families um, with their disease, and then to do genetic counseling. So early on in life, the ways to um, prevent uh, or prevent friction and prevent trauma, um, in the neonatal period, babies will often be kept on uh, like soft pads, so kind of like pillows of gauze, basically. Um, adhesives are limited, um, so you know not a lot of monitoring labels and that kind of stuff. Um, soft clothing, you usually want to turn all their uh, t-shirts and clothes inside out so that you don't have any friction from the seams. Um, you want to make sure that they're not wearing things with metal clasps because that can uh, rub against the skin. Um, soft shoes that have external seams as well. And then uh, um, sweating can be an important part of it, um, so a uh, cool environment is important. If they do have hyperhidrosis, you can minimize that. Um, Bathing is really important, and especially in kids and, and patients that have really severe forms, it can hurt to even take the bandage off. So, you know, if they, if they go into the bathtub and then they take their bandages off, uh, that can really help to minimize the amount of pain that they have. Um, but a lot, of, a lot of these patients will require some amount of pain medication before every bath. Um, adding bleach and acetic acid in the bath water can minimize infection, and then adding salt can actually soothe um, raw open skin. Um, unfortunately, topical steroids are really not too helpful, but moisturizing is important. Uh, the larger the blister, the more likely it is to expand, so pretty much any blister that's a centimeter or greater should be decompressed with a sterile needle, and families can be taught how to do this safely. Um, antibacterial ointment can be helpful, and actually medical-grade honey, so you know, something like Medi-Honey can be really helpful. Um, it has antiseptic properties, um, but you want to make sure that they're not just buying honey at the store. <laughs> 
And then in terms of the dressings, this can be kind of overwhelming um, to approach even. So uh, there are three main components to the dressing. So one is uh, you want a contact layer, so something like a Vaseline impregnated gauze, um, which won't stick to the skin. And then you want a secondary layer that's sort of like padding. So, you know, like a Mepilex or Mepilex light, something like that or the equivalent. And then something to secure it in place. So either kind of rolled gauze or there's tubular netting. And a lot of these um, kids will actually use their tubular netting over and over again and they'll dye them different colors so they match their clothes and they really get kind of fun with it. So, um, and then you always want to avoid tape, uh, adhesive and pressure. And then to try to prevent that mitten deformity, it's really important to um, try to bandage each digit individually. So you can imagine this would be really tedious and time consuming, but really can pay off in the long run. And then they, should all, they always are at high risk for infection, so important to monitor for that. Um, pain control is really important, kind of like we talked about. Um, nutritional supplementation, a lot of them will need iron because they're iron deficient. They may even need iron infusions, um, not just a supplement. Vitamin D is important because of their risk for osteoporosis and low bone density. And then a lot of them will, will need some supportive calories, um, usually via G-tube. Um, you really want to avoid an NG-tube because it can um, uh, cause a lot of trauma to that oropharynx area. A lot of them will be constipated, so you want to, you know, kind of support them through that. And then um, the esophageal dysphagia or esophageal stenosis can lead to dysphagia, so some of them will actually need um, serial dilations of their um, upper esophagus. And then uh, always monitor for squamous cell carcinoma. So any area that's blistered and is really difficult to heal um, might raise your index of suspicion that maybe there's something else going on. Um, there are some uh, advances being made in terms of curing or um, treating more than just supportive care. So there's uh, been some study into gene replacement that seems to be promising, um, some uh, transplantation of genetically corrected um, epidermal uh, stem cells has been promising, and then um, we might all be familiar with using stem cell transplantation for different forms of uh, severe EB, um, which may be um, uh, something uh, to think about as well. Another very important, great organization is DEBRA. Um, it is the Dystrophic Epidermolysis Bullosa um, Research Association, but um, it's really more of a patient-oriented uh, patient support group, and it really supports all forms of EB now, not just dystrophic, and really good information on their website, too. Um, one that um, I think is really good for all of us is uh, they talk a lot about wound care products um, and how to approach it, and there's even an area um, with websites of uh, places that patients can obtain their wound care products um, that they're really used to, you know, kind of sending them out to patients and working with insurance companies and that sort of thing. Um, a lot of families find each other on this website as well, so really important. All right, so I had a few pearls um, for genetic skin disease because it can be overwhelming. Probably, I hopefully haven't made it more overwhelming, um, but take a deep breath. I have to tell myself to do that too. Um, note whether or not they have any other health problems. Um, take a really good family history. That's, that's pretty important. Uh, skin examination, Woods Lamp can help to pick up some you know, more subtle changes or findings. You can always phone a friend. I think you know any pediatric dermatologist would be happy to talk about um, any potential genetic skin disease. A lot of genetics, uh, geneticists are really interested in skin as well. Um, and while a lot of genetic testing is, a, is available for many of these disorders, it might not 
always be an option for us because it can be pretty difficult to get covered um, by an insurance company. And that's why I think the clinical approach is really important um, to you know, try to narrow it down so that we're not ordering a whole bunch of genetic skin tests and maybe trying to make a more informed um, decision on what to pursue. Um, when you are thinking about EB, um, the best way to biopsy is to induce a fresh blister. Um, and this can be done by the end of a pencil eraser with some uh, kind of firm pressure. Um, when trying to figure out which category of EB someone falls into, there can be some characteristic um, findings. So hyperhidrosis uh, is more common in EB simplex. Dental enamel hypoplasia is more common in junctional EB. And then milia is more common in dystrophic EB. Um, and I think the, you know, the, maybe the most important pearl, which I didn't put on here, we were just talking about outside, is that, you know, most of these uh, patients, you know, they're just people and their families, and when they come to you, they don't expect you to have all the answers. They just want someone that's willing to listen to them, uh, to support them, and find out, you know, what resources are available um, for them. And a lot of times, you know, the families are as helpful for each other, uh, or more helpful for each other than even we are. All right, that's all I have. Thank you very much. Happy to answer any questions.